And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is the sixth of the seven letters to the churches that Jesus is dictating to John. And this is one of only two that has no rebuke given to it. The other one being the church of Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. The other ones have had ranging from light rebuke, as in, come on guys, get it together, to y'all are in some serious trouble. But Philadelphia, the church there, was doing all right. Now this, of course, is not Pennsylvania. I don't think anybody thought that. But let's talk about the, the actual original Philadelphia. And you probably know the name Philadelphia means brotherly love in Greek. Adelphos is the word for brother, and philos or phileo is the word for love. You've probably heard that before. So Philadelphia is brotherly love. This city was located 20 miles south and a little to the east of Sardis, which was the last church we looked at. Remember, this is going in a, in a circuit. It's going in a clockwise circle, starting the church in Ephesus and ending next week in Laodicea. The city was named for a man named Attalus II, who was known as Attalus Philadelphus, because he was one of the brothers of the king of Pergamum who remained loyal to him. So this was well before Rome. This was in the kingdom of Lydia at the time. And the king's brother had remained loyal to him, so he had that brotherly love, and so they named the city after him. And if you read the history of Philadelphia, it's really kind of a tragic history. They were constantly being battered by earthquakes. And this letter was written in the 90s AD, or circa 95 AD. Back in 17 AD, so not that long ago, the city had been completely leveled by an earthquake. And other cities had been affected as well, but it had been completely destroyed. And the aftershocks from that earthquake, plus other ones that had come upon that area, had led to the constant threat of living in that city. And there are some Roman historians that tell us that the walls had cracks going in them. And they said there was hardly a wall where you couldn't see where they'd patched it. Because it was constantly being shaken. And it led to many people living not so much inside the city as outside the city. Because if you're constantly having to flee, afraid that your house is going to fall down, you're like, this is not a good spot. Maybe we should move. And that was what they did. It was known for its vineyards. It was a volcanic soil, so it was very rich and very able to grow those things. And that became a point of conflict because Philadelphia, which was not in Rome, obviously, it was in Asia Minor. Turkey is our modern day country. But it was constantly trying to get favor from the emperors. It changed its name a couple times uh, to honor the different emperors there. And it wasn't always repaid for its brotherly love and the love that it showed to its king. There was one time where the king said, you have to burn half of your vineyards and not grow any more grapes. You have to grow corn instead. And whether that was some kind of protectionism, like we're going to let the, the Italians are going to grow all the vines and the, the wine for everybody, or if it was there was a shortage of corn. But the soil there wasn't good for corn. It was good for vineyards. And they were very angry because they had to burn them up and it takes a long time for those things to grow back. Corn wasn't growing. So this was this battered city back and forth. And that actually extended even into modern history. In 1922, 
at the end of the Greco-Ottoman War, uh, the Turks and the Greeks agreed to a population exchange. They said, we can't keep fighting because you have ethnic Turks living here and we have ethnic Greeks living there, so we'll just do a swap. And so the last Greeks left what is now called Alashahir, it's the same city, but Alashahir, in 1922. And there is a suburb of Athens, modern-day Athens, it's called Neo-Philadelphia, where all of the Greeks that were not, not exiled, but they were forced to move, who moved to Athens, and now they have their own little community called Neo-Philadelphia. So not exactly a happy history, despite its, its wonderful name. And Jesus writes to the church that is there. We don't know from the book of Acts who planted this church, but we know Paul did a lot of ministry in this region. So it was either Paul or likely one of his disciples, maybe even Apollos, who did ministry in this area as well. So how does Jesus identify himself? The words of the Holy One and the True One. If you know your Old Testament, particularly the Psalms and the book of Isaiah, when you refer to the Holy One, that is a divine title. You probably memorized some verses from the book of Isaiah where he'll call himself the Holy One of Israel. So for Jesus to take that name on himself and say the Holy One, this is a divine title that Jesus is taking. I always have to draw that out because you still have some people out there that think the Bible never says Jesus was God. That is simply not the case. But he's indicating not just that he is deity, but holy means to be separate. It means to be other, to be not like everything else. That's what holy means, and especially as we use it in relation to morality and purity. Jesus is perfect, of course. And secondly, he says, I'm the true one. Now, the form of this word here, alethanos, doesn't mean true as in like, you know, holy, absolute truth. That's in the Bible. But what he's saying here is true as in the genuine one. Like, I'm the actual holy one of Israel. I'm the genuine Messiah. He's going to talk about Jewish opposition in this letter. So for Jesus to call himself the genuine Holy One of Israel, he's like, you think you're worshiping the Lord, but if you're not worshiping me, you're not getting it. And he holds the key of David. Jesus, of course, is the son of David and also the root of Jesse. Another subject for another time. But the idea of holding keys that you open and nobody shuts and you shut and nobody opens is related to authority, the authority of Christ. This actually is a, an allusion to a, a verse from Isaiah 22, verse 22, where the prophet is, is writing about, there was a, the, the keeper of the keys and the treasury was a man named Shebna. And he was horribly corrupt and he was using temple money to build his own house and build his own tomb and things like that. And so what the Lord said is, I'm going to remove you and bring in a guy named Eliakim, my servant, and I'm going to give him the key of David. And when he opens, nobody will shut. And when he shuts, nobody will open. So he's saying, you, you corrupt treasurer are going to be replaced by a new one. But this is such a, a perfect description of Jesus because who else has the keys of life and death but Jesus Christ himself? Nobody is able to oppose Jesus Christ. He has all authority. And knowing that is going to help us transition to what we're going to talk about today. Because when you talk about Jesus having all authority, there's one verse that immediately comes to my mind, and that's Matthew 28. I'm sure you know this one, the Great Commission. Jesus, after his resurrection, right prior to his ascension, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I've got the keys, fellas. 
So what is Jesus going to tell them to do with this authority? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What does Jesus tell us to do with his authority? Go out and evangelize the world. Go make disciples. And this is key to remember because Philadelphia as a city was originally established as a cultural mission city intended to Hellenize the Lydian kingdom. What does that mean? The city of Philadelphia was built and established or built up and established to be a place where Greek culture would be exported to Asia Minor. This was where they would bring the language, they would bring the art, they would bring the religion, they'd bring the culture, the dress, the sports, all of it. This is why the Maccabees rebelled, among other reasons, against the, the Greeks, because they were doing that in Israel. But this is what happened in the kingdom of Lydia, and Philadelphia was the hub for that, and it worked. Because before long, nobody spoke anything but Greek in this place, and we were just describing how it was a conflict between the Greeks and the non-Greeks in this place, even though this isn't Greece. They were bound to that Greco-Roman culture. Likewise, Jesus Christ, with all of his authority, the keys that he holds, has commissioned us to export his kingdom's culture to the rest of the world, to bring good news. He's opened up a door and nobody can shut it, despite tyrants and other men's repeated attempts to shut the door on that. So our lesson for today, have you obeyed that command to take the gospel to the world by the authority of your Lord Jesus? And also, have you yourself believed and put your faith in Jesus Christ? Verse 8, what does Jesus have to say to this church in Philadelphia? Well, as he always says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. As a reference back to those keys from verse 7. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Unlike most of the other churches, Jesus has nothing negative to say to this church, just like Smyrna. Nothing negative to say. And he refers to that description of holding the keys. I've got the keys. I'm opening a door for you, and no one will be able to shut it. The major interpretive question of this passage, or this verse anyway, is what door is Jesus talking about? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, although it is very interesting, and you might want to do some research on your own. Is Jesus, number one, referring to the door of salvation, meaning I've opened up the door to salvation no one's going to be able to close that door. I don't care the persecution you're enduring. Nobody can stop you. That's possible. And there are a lot of people who believe that. The other one is that this is an open door of ministry. There's several references in the Bible to an open door describing we can go do ministry here. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 2, and Colossians chapter 4 referred to an open door as a reference to an opportunity for ministry. We can work here. And that's how the church tends to use that language today. We say, God, open up the door. Or God has closed the door for ministry here. That's Pauline New Testament language. So which is it? The door of salvation or the door of ministry opportunity? Well, I will just say both of them are true. Jesus has opened up the door to salvation. And you might say they're tied together because the opportunity for ministry is to go and let people know that the door is open and invite them to come in. 
like the parable Jesus told, go out into the highways and byways and invite everybody you see to come in. But I do think that in this passage, the second option is primary. Why do I say that? Because it, it seems not odd, but it's, it seems more likely that he's talking about that than saying somebody else might try to shut the door of salvation in your face. And also when he references just a little power that they have. Power in the Bible seems to be more related to the work of ministry as opposed to salvation itself. But I really don't care to argue with you about that. I certainly believe that Jesus has opened up the door of salvation. But today, we're going to talk about an open door of ministry. A church's mission is what? Don't answer out loud. Just think to yourself. What is the mission of a church? What is church for? Now, if you've been in church a long time and you're well-discipled, you know the answer to that. But maybe you don't understand. Like, well, that's actually a good question. Why do we have these things? There's some people that like churches for cultural reasons. It separates us from them. And that's not a bad thing necessarily because it's better to believe in Christ than something else. There's also people that believe that churches exist for political reasons. That this is the way we consolidate people who believe the same way and then, you know, turn that into votes. Well, that's less good, I think. And uh, I'm constantly getting emails and letters from folks that want to, you know, I don't want to use the word use our church, but let's, let's do. They want to use our church. Like, we've already got all these conservatives, for the most part, gathered together in one room. Let's go talk to them. Well, that's not what this place is for. <laughs> this place is for something else. A church's mission is to evangelize. Evangelize, that comes from the Greek word evangelion. That's really the Roman word, but you get it. The beginning of that word, you, like E-U, means something good. And then angelion, or angel, is the word angel, like a message, right? An angel is a messenger from the Lord. So it's the good message. It's the good news. So good news eyes the whole world. That's what we're supposed to do, is to take that good news of Jesus, bring people into the fold, and then to make disciples of them. And as a group, as a church, we do this quite often. We have several public outreaches that we do with the intended goal of evangelism and discipleship. The three big ones that we engage in is we go in every Monday morning to St. Clair County Correctional Facility, and we teach some classes there, but the classes are always with the scriptures open and with the gospel of Jesus being heralded. And we've seen lots of men come to the Lord through that ministry, praise God. We also have the Discovery Club, where we do an after-school program for the kids at the school. And we've seen kids come to the Lord there, too. And I pray that we see more of that. We also are volunteer and support the uh, Positive Choices Pregnancy Center, which is a a resource for women and for families that are having trouble with unplanned pregnancies, but it's also a gospel mission. And that's why we're involved there, because this is a great thing, but I want to do it in the name of Jesus. We also have world missions. We also have the website with all the Bible teaching there. We have the radio program that goes out. By the way, I'm constantly hearing people that have found us on the radio, which is amazing because you never see who's listening on the radio. You just kind of send it out there and hope somebody's listening. There's lots of things that we do. And if you are not part of one of those things, I really encourage you to be part of it. The next time we do a missions trip, sign up to go. We're going to be having some events in May. We're going to have the 5K. We're going to be going door to door and inviting people again. Sign up to do that. Join in what the church is doing and participate in that so that you can share in the reward and so that you can honestly before God say, yes, I was engaged in the mission. But what I want to focus on today is how each of us as an individual has a responsibility to tell people. You've got to tell people. 
to tell our friends, to tell our family, that's harder, to tell our neighbors, to tell strangers of what Christ has done. And what are we to tell them? Let me break it down in three quick parts for you. You've got to tell them the story. Jesus came down from heaven, died on the cross, and rose again on the third day. You really believe that? Your answer is, yes, I do. Don't get cute with it now. Tell the story. Don't try to, you know, change. if you try to give somebody an a altered gospel so that they'll come to church, eventually they're going to hear the real thing, so just get it out of the way in the first place. Tell the story. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You believe Jesus was God? Well, of course. He rose from the dead. How do you know that? Well, he changed my life, and it's written right here in his word. Okay? You've got to tell the story. Number two, you've got to tell what it means. Oh, Jesus died and rose again. So? He died for the forgiveness of sins and rose again to offer newness of life and resurrection at the end. What does it mean? It's good news because your sins can be forgiven, which means you've got to talk about sin a little bit. And you've also got to talk about the fact that when you, number three, how do you respond to it? You've got to believe. You've got to believe and you've got to repent. You've got to turn from the old life and turn from your old ideas. I've had people, you know, if we want to use the fishers of men analogy, I've had them up to the boat and ready to put the net in and draw them in. And they'll say something like, well, but I'm not going to give up this sin. Is that going to be a problem? Yes, it is. Jesus did not let anybody follow after him who was not ready to go all in with them. Go back and read the Gospels. Why didn't Jesus just say, you know, stick around until you, until you get over it? He says, nope. Nope, if you're not willing to lose everything, you're not able to be my disciple. That's what you're going to go tell them. Sometimes that's the first thing. Well, I don't know what to say. What do you mean you don't know what to say? Tell them the story, tell them what it means, and tell them what they're supposed to do. Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and to give us hope of eternal life, if you will put your faith in him and turn from your old life, you will be saved. How long did that take? 10 seconds? 15 seconds? That's all it takes. You can, you can get that out of your mouth before the person has time to say, excuse me, I'm not interested. You've got a responsibility to tell them. And it's not just my job. This is to the whole church. Say, so, well, I don't know if I want to. Excuse me, Jesus Christ who holds the keys that opens and no one can shut and, sh and shuts and no one can open with all authority has said, go. So if you're a Christian, this is not optional. It's not optional. Proverbs 11.30, he who saves souls is wise. Can I just say, just in passing, because it's just us, uh, in preparation for this message, talking about evangelism, I listened to a study by Adrian Rogers on evangelism, and man, that guy could preach. It's like, well, if you've got a voice like that, of course you can preach. Man, that's just not fair. That's an unfair advantage. But talking about he's, he who saves souls is wise. And I was like, that is just, it's true. We're supposed to be out there saving souls, winning souls. And there's so folks that don't like that kind of language. That's not 21st century, 2023 language. That's not post-pandemic language. We're supposed to be inclusive and accepting and just let people do what they're going to do. And if they want to come to your thing, yeah, that's fine. That's not how the Christian sees it. And people say, well, you can't do that. You've got to keep your faith to yourself and let them keep their faith to themselves. It is an article of faith for the Christian that we have to do this. It's not spreading your faith is different from your faith. It's part of it. Amen? And unfortunately, and I'm, I'm pointing the finger at myself here too, soul winning is a lost art. It seems that we've lost that emphasis in the church. 
I remember growing up and just constantly hearing about evangelism techniques and apologetics answers and how to do this. And this was accepted. It's what we do. But we've lost that, unfortunately. We've got to get it back. And I'm hoping today will help us with that. You've got to be able to initiate a conversation with somebody. That's just a good life skill, period. To be able to initiate a conversation with somebody. But sometimes you can initiate a conversation with somebody about any old thing, but not Jesus. So I say, start a conversation about any old thing and then turn it to Jesus. Well, that's manipulative. It is not. It is not. And if you feel manipulative, well, then just apologize to the Lord for being manipulative and go for it. <laughs> How easy. It's not hard to do that. You're sitting at the store. You're standing in the grocery line. Ask somebody how they're doing. How's your day going? Oh, it's going fine. You're just, oh, you're picking up some stuff? You're having some people over? Yeah, we're doing good. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah, we had some people over last week from church. Oh, that's great. Yeah, do you go to church? Boom, we're right there. Was that weird? Was that manipulative? And if you feel manipulative, then just come out with it. I had a neighbor, my next door neighbor, uh, my old house in Virginia. We were just talking one time, and he was an older man, and we're just you know, laughing and joking about whatever. And then he goes, you know, he kind of holds his like this, and he goes, I just love Jesus so much. I said, you do? He goes, yeah, he... He died on the cross for our sins. Do you know Jesus? No fanfare, no introduction. He just went for it. And I was like, yes, man, I work at a church. And I like, oh, I love hearing that. We prayed together. And I've always looked back and like, man, he, he didn't try to get cute. He just said, hey, I love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Amen. So turn it to Christ. Number three, you've got to give him the gospel. You ever done this? Like you're talking about church and religion. You're talking about all this stuff, but you never quite get to the point where it's like, hey, here's the story. Here's what it means. And here's what you need to do. Are you able to answer objections? This is the part where we all freak out, right? Because you're, you're afraid that some, the person is going to be some expert atheist that knows everything. And it's like, I've never encountered that person. And if you have, just brush it off and just say, hey, okay, maybe you have some questions, but what do you think about this? Well, the church has done something. I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about Jesus. Well, Jesus is fine. Okay, well, good. Let's talk about what he says. What about evolution? I wasn't talking about evolution. I was talking about Jesus. What are all the bad things that happen? I'm sorry, did something happen to you? Well, no, but lots of bad things happen all over the world. Okay, well, that's why Jesus came. Why doesn't God intervene? He did. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. Keep coming back to that. Paul said, I have purpose to know nothing among you. <laughs> How's that for a sermon point? Purpose to know nothing. <laughs> except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's like you only ever talk about one thing. He's like, yeah, I know. Change my life, man. So that's soul winning. You're initiating a conversation, turning it to Christ, giving them the gospel, answering the objections. But number five, man, you've got to bring them to a point of decision. I know there's folks that want to be like, well, it's not just about making a decision. Duh. But it starts with a decision, does it not? So what do you, what do you think about this? I don't know. Do you want to be born again right now? I don't know. Well, what's stopping you? I don't know. Well, then why don't, you, why don't we get born again right now? Okay. And if that happens, it's like... <gasps> It's happening. <laughs> you know? It's great, man. There's nothing. Y'all know it. There's nothing quite like that, is there? Being, and it's not always with a stranger, obviously. It's different when you're with a friend or a neighbor or somebody that you know. Some of us need to go up to our neighbors and say, I owe you a colossal apology because I've lived next to you for seven years and I've never once told you about the good news of Jesus Christ. They're like, okay. And you say, no, I know this is awkward, but you need to understand this is the most important thing in my life and I've kept it from you. I apologize. Let me tell you about this. We've got to recapture this, Christians. This is what we do. We talk about Jesus. 
It's like a meme now. It's a joke. Do you have a minute to talk about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? When's the last time you actually said that to somebody? And I mean, of all generations, to lose our emphasis on evangelism. Come on, guys. It's not about going up to somebody and telling them that abortion is wrong. It is. It's not about going to somebody and telling them you need to live as the gender God gave you. They should. But it's about coming and saying, do you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? Start there. The Lord will sort out the rest. I promise you. But we are very often like the church in Philadelphia. What does he say? I know you have but little power, just a little strength. He's not rebuking them, by the way. He's not saying, what's wrong with you? Get some more power, man. No, that's good. Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's what Jesus tells him here. You ever feel like you have just a little bit of power when it comes to evangelism? Whether that's personally inadequate? Where it's like, you don't know, Pastor Tyler, how much I've sinned lately. And if I go out and try to share the gospel, I'm going to get struck with lightning or something like that. <laughs> really? You think God's going to get mad at you for telling somebody about Jesus? I can think of no better way to help overcome persistent sin than going out and leading other people to Christ. Walking right next to the Holy Spirit in ministry. Well, I don't know enough. You don't need to know anything except Jesus Christ. If you don't know the answer, say, look, I don't know about that. But here's what I am here to tell you. Jesus Christ died on this cross for your sins and God loves you. There is no God. Just say, yes, there is. Well, what about the blah, 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 blah? Listen, they probably don't understand what those words mean either. So just keep bringing it back to the, the message that has power. Whether number two, like we can feel sometimes, if your church just has a little strength, I feel like Calvary Chapel Trustville, as great as what's happening here is, we just have a little bit of strength. You know, if, if somebody were to drop a billion dollars and a million volunteers on our doorstep, I could probably put them to use. Here's what we could be doing. And it's like, but Lord, but we can't do that right now. But that's okay. Lord's like, I don't need you to have a lot of strength. I need you to not deny my name and keep my word. And we are doing that. And haven't we seen that the Lord has enabled our little ministry here to have an impact way outsized what we ought to be able to do? To be able to go around the world and lead people to Christ and go into the prisons and go into the schools and it's just little old us? How great is that? So I need to remember that sometimes. You know, when I talk to my friends that are, their churches are just blowing up and it's doing so good. And, oh, yeah, we just had, you know, our, had to go to a fourth service this week. And I'm like, well, we didn't. But, <laughs> but who cares, man? It's the Lord that gives the increase. And as long as there's nothing we can point to in saying we ought to be doing that, then we shouldn't worry about it. All I can say is I need to be sharing the gospel with more people personally. And the third way you can feel like you have a little power is when the culture is bearing down. Isn't that happening today? Now, we are not being actively persecuted here, right? But wouldn't you love just to roll up one day and see protesters outside? I'd be like, hey, we're worthy. We're worthy to suffer reproach for Jesus' name. By the way, if that happens, none of you ever, don't say a single nasty thing to one of those people. Make them coffee and tell them they can use the bathroom if they want to. As far as Jesus was concerned, it wasn't their little strength that mattered. It was their faithfulness to his word and their integrity in keeping the gospel. And that enabled them to say, guys, the door is wide open. Don't worry about it. Oh, they're closing in on us. They're trying to stop us. Jesus goes, man, I've got the keys. They're not shutting the door. Even if they do, I've got the key. I'll just unlock it and open it up again. Said, but I'm not enough. I'm not adequate. I'm not sufficient. You know what Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 3? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. You're not sufficient for any of this. 
If you're waiting until you're sufficient, guess what? You're not going to be. But, he continues, our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. God has given you everything you need to be an effective soul winner. Our church, everything it needs to make effective disciples. People are dying and going to hell. We've got to stop focusing on ourselves so much. Well, I'm not enough. But you might be the only one that they're going to see. You, you can't take for granted that somebody's heard the gospel. I meet people in the, in the jail ministry and everything else where they, they don't even know the gospel. They even grew up in church and they don't know the gospel. They went to church a lot, but nobody ever sat down and told them what this means. I said, what is grace? Being nice to somebody? Wow, all right. We've got to explain this. Maybe the reason that person is so nasty and so hostile to the gospel, they never even heard it before. You've got to be the one to tell them. God loved them enough to send his son to open the door, and he loves them enough now to send you out with an open door that cannot be closed. So you've got to walk through it. Well, this is not like it used to be. It's dark days and it's terrible. Yes, I know. But it's easier to share the gospel in those kind of days because nobody's got that little veneer of, well, yeah, I go to church, and you don't have to work through all of that whole thing. Yeah, but are you born again? How dare you say something like that? I tithe, sir. Yeah, but do you know Jesus? You got folks that, do you know Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Nope. All right. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the gospel. I told this story before, so I'll just give the short version. I was in Washington, D.C. with a group of high schoolers one time, leading the group, and we're outside the Bible Museum, and somebody brings up this guy and says, hey, Tyler, this is so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, he's a, he wanted to talk to you. And he goes, hey, I'm a, I'm a college student at, I think it was Georgetown or wherever, and he said, and I'm doing my uh, history of religion or philosophy class, and he said, I heard you guys talking, and are you evangelical Christians? Like, yes. He goes, I've never talked to an evangelical Christian before. Can I talk to you for a few minutes? It's like, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't say, well, no, we have to be in the museum at 11 so that we can be at lunch at 12. I was like, y'all go do whatever you want. I'm going to talk to this guy. But he had no clue. He didn't even know enough to be angry. <laughs> so what do you believe about? And I'm, what I just went through what I told you. We believe that all of this is real, that Jesus literally died on the cross, literally rose from the dead, and you're literally going to go to heaven or hell when you die. People don't even know. If we speak out, there will be souls saved if you speak out. Or I can guarantee you this, if you don't share the gospel with anybody, you won't lead anybody to, to salvation. I can guarantee you that much. But the more people you speak to, the more people you will see. So the, the action point here is to join in the mission as a church. Find a way to serve. Every one of those ministries I just named needs help. They all need more volunteers. And I realize that there are conflicts and there's this and that, but just pick one and just give yourself to it as much as you can. But also you need to take the time to speak to the people you encounter every day. Let's make it a point of prayer, just every single one of us to say, Lord, I want to lead one person to Jesus Christ. And make it a point of prayer every single day. And something you think about every single day. And don't stress about it. Just say, this is what I want to do. You'll be amazed how fast it will happen. Because the Lord has the same goal. Say, hey, I'm into that too. I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Remember last year I was praying one time like, Lord, I haven't just been able to lead a sinner to Christ in one-on-one -on -one in so long. Please, would you bring that to me? And within like two weeks... I was in Donaldson prison. I, I closed the group in prayer. And this guy came up and said, hey, I really liked your prayer. I got to lead him to the Lord right there. His name is Amir. We need to be praying for him. I haven't seen him since because it's, of course, difficult to get in there and see him. But just pray, just for one. 
Well, I want to do more than one. Just start with one. It's just one person. All right. And then do another one. <laughs> and then take the person you just led to the Lord. Let's both pray. So now there's two of you. And now you're going to go out and you're just going to see the Lord. It'll, you want your Christian life to be revitalized and totally transformed? Start sharing the gospel. Day by day. In the official capacities that we do here, but also out there. And if you're so scared and so intimidated, guys, that really, that's such a hard thing, invite people to church. I'll preach the gospel to them, I promise. And you'll meet people here. And you'll then have an opening to say, so what did you think about what Pastor Tyler said? Oh, yeah, you know, it was great. I enjoyed being there. All right, do you, do you believe all that? Well, I mean, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. Well, what do you think about it? And you pursue the conversation. So that's verse 8. I know your works. I've set before you an open door. No one's able to shut. I know that you have but little power, but you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name. Verse 9 is one of those verses that if it wasn't out of the mouth of Jesus, we might rebuke whoever said it. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Well, that's all kind of problematic, that verse, isn't it? <laughs> Seems that like the church in Smyrna, the Philadelphian church was being persecuted by the Jews in their city. In the synagogues, you read through the book of Acts, you see this over and over again. Paul would begin his ministry in the synagogue, and then once the Gentiles began to get saved, they'd get booted out of the synagogue. So then they would go and do ministry, and then the Jews would start to harass them and stir up riots and hire thugs to come and beat up the, the ministers, and then they would chase them from city to city. And Jesus pulls no punches and said, they're a synagogue of Satan. Jesus said in John 8, 44, when he was speaking to the Jews at one time, he said, you are of your father, the devil. That saying that all Jews are devils? No. If you thought I said that, you weren't listening. He's saying, inasmuch as these ethnic Jews have rejected Jesus Christ, the Messiah, however much they claim to be serving Adonai, Yahweh, Jehovah, God, they are actually serving Satan. That's just the truth. Romans 2, Paul says the same thing. You're not just to be a Jew inwardly, or sorry, outwardly. You've got to be inwardly too. It's not enough just to be circumcised or be descended from Abraham. Remember John the Baptist? God could turn that rock into a child of Abraham. So don't come at me with your ethnic credentials. And I realize that we are always careful not to be anti-Semitic and to not you know, reject the Jews. And we love Israel because we're supposed to. And we love all the prophetic fulfillment. We cannot forget that until they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are an enemy of the cross. People will try to make you feel bad about that and pressure you out of it. Don't let them do it. They were persecuting the church, and that still happens in Israel of all places, unfortunately. But, you know, let's, let's broaden this out a little bit. What's the worst case scenario you run through in your mind when you're out sharing the gospel with somebody? Angry words, getting cussed out, door slammed in your face, right? harassment, worst case scenario. Like, what if I go share the gospel and they do this? Have anybody ever had that happen? I have. Guess what? I lived. <laughs> it's all right. I didn't see that guy again, so, you know, it was okay. I had a guy, I went up to him, we were out with the youth group, and I was sharing the gospel in the mall, and I, I said, like, one thing, and he goes, this is some kind of pitch I'm not interested. All right, goodbye. <laughs> People slammed the door in my face. I hate God. I don't want anything to do with God. Why don't you just leave me alone? Yep, yeah, it happens. And we do live in a day when resentment against the church, at least in terms of our country, is at an all-time high. 
People have no qualms about publishing things and tweeting things and saying things and posting them online about what they really think about the church and about the Bible and people who believe it. And that's a hard thing, especially during the, the pandemic. We saw quite a bit of that, didn't we? It was surprising, kind of shocking, wasn't it? But something that I tried to keep in front of us, and I hope next time we'll do a little better job at, is to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. And he said, no, persecution. We weren't persecuted. They were just saying nasty things. Well, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hey, when godless people hate what you're doing, it means you're doing something right. And I recognize that out of love and patriotism, it is so hard to see our country go that way. But as believers and citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we rejoice. All right. The Lord has told us that that means we're just like the, the true prophets. The true prophets who were persecuted. Opposition in evangelism is a mark of success in the spirit, not failure. You've got to retrain your brain. You've got to think to yourself, if somebody gets mad and cusses me out and runs away, praise the Lord. That means I'm giving the word out. If you share the gospel to a thousand people and nobody ever opposes you or gets frustrated or gets angry or walks away, you might want to reevaluate what you're preaching. Because the Bible calls the gospel the scandal of the cross. It's a stumbling block. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. So you go out and calling people that fancy themselves smart to believe something they see as foolish. You're telling religious people, I want you to give up all of your heritage and everything you've ever known and believed right now. That's provocative to people. We should rejoice and keep going. If you preach the gospel, well, they didn't want to hear it this time. I guess I shouldn't. That must be a sign from God I'm supposed to stop. No, 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 no. You keep going because that means that the devil's opposing you. But the good news is the devil can't stand against you because Christ opened the door and nobody can close the door when Christ has opened it because he's got the keys. And look at what Jesus says. These opponents, the synagogue of Satan, in our day, who knows what, what group it might be that hate us so much. Probably the, that postmodern crowd, that the church is an oppressive patriarchal institution that is perpetuating systemic issues and blah, 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 blah. What does Jesus say? I will make them bow down before your feet. He didn't say my feet, your feet. We go, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Well, get comfortable. It's in your Bible. I don't know if that's the right interpretation. Well, you read it and tell me your interpretation. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This is, you cannot get away from it, and a very masculine, warlike picture here. I'm going to bring the captives and make them kneel down before your feet after the battle is over. That's how Jesus described it. Jesus is a warrior in the book of Revelation. Don't you know that? Revelation 19, go read it again. No, no spoilers, just go read it. He comes with a sword in his hand and his robe is drenched in the blood of his enemies. He says, I'm going to make those that opposed you and hated you and tried to stop you and tried to take your children from you. They're going to bow down before your feet and they're going to learn that I have loved you, that this was the real thing. Christ is going to vindicate you someday. 
Don't you know that? All the people that have said, you don't know what you're talking about, you're an idiot, you're a loser, you're non-scientific, whatever, they're all going to see one day. And they're not just going to see Christ, they're going to see you. Christ is going to vindicate you one day. The world will see that God has loved us. Don't you love that? What are they going to recognize? It's not just rightness for being right's sake. Jesus is going to say, these are my children that you were harassing. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul of Tarsus at the time realized, them's God's kids that I was hauling off to prison and death. And the good news is, this is, I think, primarily referring to the last day, but this can happen before that too. Is there anything more wonderful than seeing a violent, vicious opponent of the church come to Christ? It's a hilarious trend. People set out to disprove the gospel and turn into apologists. I'm going to take the Bible at its own terms and I'm going to try to disprove it. And God goes, watch out, man. My word is a sword and it will cut you up. That's what happens. So many of the people that are opposing us, it's not like, well, one day God's going to get them. One day God is going to save them. And they're going to see the truth and they're going to be here with us. And we're going to be raising hands and holding hands together, singing God's praises. The world will see that God has loved us. God has appointed so many people to be saved. And we don't know who they are, but we get to find out as we go out heralding the gospel. It's our job to seek them out, to call everyone unto salvation. And Satan can't stop you. Well, the devil just put a stop to it. No, he can't do that. Jesus said, I've opened the door and no one can shut it. Don't let yourself be intimidated, guys. The harsh responses you get are part of the process. Haven't you heard a testimony, maybe it's your testimony, of somebody who was like, every time somebody wanted to talk to me about Jesus, I got angry. And I would fight, and I'd spit in their face. But then I'd walk home, and I would just know that this was true, and I was running from God. And then finally, somebody came and brought it to me, and I broke down and wept. Now, as far as the last person is concerned, wow, this person just got saved, right, just like that. But for the 10 people that witnessed to him beforehand, they're like, this dude is lost, and he is never coming to salvation. You don't know. Your job is to sow seeds and water seeds. And who knows? Sometimes you get to reap a harvest too. We're going to see people in heaven that are going to come and throw their arms around our neck and say, you were step five in the 10-step process that brought me to Jesus. Whoa, this guy? I thought there was no chance she'd be saved. I was stuttering and stammering and barely got it out. And she laughed in my face. And I walked away feeling like an idiot. And yet that stuck into her heart. And the Holy Spirit was like, that's all I need to bear fruit here. It's a process. Don't be intimidated by the persecution because one day God's going to vindicate you. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, common theme in these letters, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now we're going to talk about this for a second. This is one of the pivotal verses of this section. And for those of us who believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the saints, this is one of our key verses here. Let's look at what he promises this church. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. We believe, I'll go ahead and tell you our position at the beginning, and then I'll explain why we believe it. We believe that this is God promising the church, not just this church, but every church, that they will escape the tribulation period that is going to come and be described in the book of Revelation, starting at chapter 6. Why do I believe that? Let's look at it. 
Four things we're going to get at here. Number one, what is the hour of trial? Because that's very important. This cannot refer to just a trial for the church of Philadelphia. Because he says the hour of trial which is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And if you look at the rest of the book of Revelation, he's about to describe a rather intense hour of trial. Now you might say, well, this would be the final judgment. Well, no, it's not judgment, it's trial. It's trial, which is testing to see whether something is legitimate or not. Once you've gotten to the judgment seat, it's a little too late for that. So I think that's what he's describing here, that seven-year period of judgment. And he says, I will keep you from it. And that word for keep is tereo. It just means to guard or to watch or to protect or to keep. But the key that we have to look at here is the preposition. I will keep you, guard you, take care of you. Hour of trial, which is the tribulation, from. The Greek word there is ek, and it is almost always translated out of. I will keep you out of the hour of trial would be a very legitimate and, in fact, literal translation there. Now, many people want to say, see, you pre-trib guys, you just think that you're too good and you don't have to suffer and you shouldn't have to go through persecution and it's just escapism. What did I just talk about? Rejoice when you're persecuted. It's part of the process. I think I've just laid out my credentials here for you. I do not believe that you are exempt from suffering. That's part of it. In fact, the Bible says that it is only through many sufferings that we shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So that straw man aside, this is something else. Here's point number two. That hour of trial, the tribulation period that Jesus promised to keep us ek out of, from, is not just another trial. It's not just another hard time. The tribulation period, this seven years starting in chapter six, represents the wrath of God on the world. There's no escaping that if you look at the book of Revelation. Even chapter six, at the beginning of it, talks about the wrath of God of the Lamb. And I have a soteriological problem with the idea that we are going to have to endure the wrath of God on the earth because Jesus Christ already bore the wrath of God for us on the cross. And I cannot accept an idea that there is one generation of Christians that will have it all born on the cross except for that last little bit they're going to have to go through at the end. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if these last seven years represent the wrath of God poured out on the world, is the church going to go through that? God never punishes the righteous with the unrighteous. Ever. Look at Lot. Genesis 18.25 Abraham said, Lord, far be it from you to judge the righteous with the unrighteous. The angel told Lot, in chapter 19, 22 of Genesis, it says, you've got to get out of the city for I can do nothing until you are gone. I believe that is an appropriate typology for the judgment that is going to fall upon the world in the last days. And also, if you look in the book of Revelation, those who believe in Christ are going to be ravaged. Those that come to faith during that time will be persecuted and executed. So if there are any believers alive during this time, they won't be pr magically preserved. Some folks think that. Well, they'll be during that time, but none of the judgments will affect them. That's not what Revelation says. So it's the wrath of God. When he says, I'll keep you from the hour that is coming, that's key too. Here's the third point. He doesn't say, I'm going to keep you from the trial. He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. 
This is important because John 17, 15, Jesus said, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Same words, tereo ek heponeru. I'm out of the, away from the evil one. Say? So people say, ah, so it's the same thing. We're still in the world. God just keeps us safe from the devil. But, okay, he says, I'll keep you from, safe from the evil one. What does he say he's going to keep us safe from? The hour. You are not going to be touched by that time. It's a specific time period he's referring to that I will keep you out of or away from. It's not just the punishment. It's the experience of the trial itself. So this is the, that's the third thing. Number one, that this is describing the tribulation period and we're going to be out of it. Number two, this is the wrath of God, so I don't believe we will endure the wrath of God. Number three, he says not the trial, but the time of the trial. Number four... This matches what we see elsewhere, that the tribulation begins with the Antichrist's rise. Because that's a question, well, how do we know that this is the wrath of God? Well, the wrath of God begins when Antichrist arises, which we're going to see in Revelation chapter 6. It's also what we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Those of you that are so worried that the Antichrist is about to rise, the Bible says God is restraining him and he cannot for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The devil's trying. Only he who now restrains will do it until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that the lawless one will be revealed. But that can happen right now. So what's got to happen in between to change that? Paul says the restrainer will be removed. Who's the only one able to restrain Satan? The Holy Spirit. And how is the Holy Spirit at work in the world today? Through the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is a hard thing. If you believe that someday the Antichrist is going to come and destroy just about everything the church has built, how can you square that with the idea that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Well, if you believe that the Lord is going to take his children away prior to the hour of trial, that answers that question for you. The hope that Jesus gives to this persecuted church was to be spared the ravages of the day of the Lord that were about to be described. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. We call this the rapture. It comes from the Greek word harpazo and from the Latin word rapio, which means to catch up or snatch or carry away. Rapture kind of sounds like the word raptor, which is a bird of prey, right? Think of a bird of prey swooping down with its talons and picking something up and going away with it. That's the word. The Lord is going to carry us away. And we believe like Elijah was caught up, like Enoch walked with God and was not for the Lord took him, that we will be caught up prior to the terrible things that will be described in chapter 6 through chapter 19. Because he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial coming upon the whole world. The Bible never, never tells us, prepare, brace for impact, here comes the tribulation. What it says is, look out, because Jesus is coming quickly to take us home to be with him the imminence of the rapture. There is nothing else that must happen prophetically until Jesus Christ returns. I, I am not a sign hunter because the Bible's already told me he's going to come like a thief. 
It's going to happen at any moment. There's nothing else that has to happen. Could other things interesting happen? Let's say the temple being built in Jerusalem. That would certainly cause us to go, oh boy, yes. But none of it has to happen. And none of it necessarily means that the return is any sooner than it was before. The only thing the Bible tells us that must happen before the rapture is the total evangelism of the whole world. You want Jesus to come back faster? Share the gospel. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 says that by doing so, we hasten the coming of our Lord. Paul in Romans eleven twenty five 25 says, Until the fullness of Gentiles come in, there will be, the hardness of Israel will not be lifted. Mark 13, 10, Jesus said, But first, this gospel will be preached to all nations. If you're so excited about prophecy and you're so excited about the rapture and you're just desperate for it to happen and you see the darkness growing and you're scared and say, Lord, you've got to come quickly. What can I do to help? Preach the gospel. Go out and tell somebody about Christ. We evangelize with the hope of the vindication that Jesus promises, but also for fear that when that rapture happens, it's going to be judgment. And there will be many that come to faith during that time. But they, those people are not promised the same protection that this church is promised and that we are promised here. By the way, look from Revelation 6 through 19 for the word church. You will not find it. We'll talk about that more. It's interesting. Verse 11 through 12. I am coming soon. Somebody say amen. amen. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers... Christian life is compared to conquest. Don't you love that? I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Doesn't that give you chills that Jesus Christ will have a new name? The repeated refrain of Revelation, I am coming soon, should put fire in you to do the work of evangelism. He doesn't rebuke the church. He just tells them, hold fast, like an old sea salt. Hold fast, men. Don't let anybody steal your crown. The Bible, when it talks about the crown that we will receive, most often refers to suffering and soul winning. Suffering for Christ and saving souls for Christ. He promises that those who finish the race will be made pillars in the temple. But guess what? When you get to Revelation 21 and 22, it says there is no temple for the dwelling place of God will be with men. So it's not that you're going to be turned into a pillar. It just means our relationship is going to be so fixed and so steadfast. You're going to basically be a pillar in that relationship. There's no nobodies in God's family. There's no outer rim of people that are kind of there, but just kind of watching. And, you know, you get your five-minute appointment with Jesus every million years, but that's about it. No, everybody who overcomes will be a pillar in the new Jerusalem, which we're going to talk about in chapter 21. He's going to write his name on you. He's like, Philadelphia, you're not going to have to be fleeing from earthquakes every 10 years. You're not going to be changing the name of your city, trying to please the emperors. I'm going to write my name on you, and you're never going to have to go out of my city again. Those of you that feel excluded from God, don't you realize you will be a fixture in heaven? When we feel small, we've got to remember that God has called us by name and hand-picked us to be saved. Some of you here, I don't know all of you. Maybe you say, okay, I would love to believe this, but you don't know what I've done. I, I used to know God. I used to be a church, but I haven't been in so long. I just, I don't know. What am I supposed to do? God, right now, through me and through his scripture, is calling you to come and be saved. 
and he'll write his name on you. And you're going to be forever in heaven, known by God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you've not put your faith in what Jesus has done, you need to do it. Today can be your day. You can be born again today. I can offer you heaven for free today if you will turn from your old life and let Jesus give you a better one. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not just for Philadelphia, it's for every church. They were opposed, so are we. They were weak, so are we. But they had a mandate from God to preach the gospel, and so do we. The world is dying, and we've got the answer. You cannot let your fear of discomfort keep you from giving the good news to somebody. It'll be awkward, guys. They're dying. They're going to hell without you. Are we so angry at the world's sin that we would withhold the hope of heaven from them? Sometimes we get angrier about sin than we feel loving for sinners. How can they do something like that? Pity them, Christian. They're deceived. They're in darkness. The devil's got hold of their life. But you've got the truth that you can give them. For those of you, those of us, who maybe when you think of how the world is going crazy and the people in all kinds of sexual depravity and immorality, and you just sit there and you get angry, Go home and say, Lord, would you turn this rage to tears? He who sows in tears will reap in joy. Bring it in the sheaves. Amen? Amen? Jesus could return at any minute, and we'll be carried up to glory. But are you going to be embarrassed that you're coming by yourself? Or are you going to have a whole train of captives coming in with you? He who wins souls is wise. Don't you want to come into heaven and just like do like a holy conga line through the gates with all the people that you led to Jesus Christ and all the people they led to Jesus Christ and just have a whole harvest of souls coming with you? Jesus said in Mark 16, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It's not up to you to make them believe. It's your job to herald the truth. And then it's up to the Holy Spirit to do his work. So guys, go into the world. Speak to everybody you can and tell them the story of Jesus. Tell them that their sins may be forgiven, that they will repent and believe. Tell them that God loves them so much, he did everything necessary to welcome them into his family. And then invite them to come and be part of our family. Jesus has opened the door, not just to preach, but the door to heaven. And nobody can shut it because Jesus holds the keys. 